Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. As always, you can support the show and get months worth of bingeable content over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. There is a link in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. The case I have for us today is a bit controversial, which I did not realize when I chose it. It is a closed case with a conviction, but many people believe that the police caught the wrong man. Oh, shit. So prepare yourselves, because there is going to be some thinking today. All right. Controversy. There you go. Today we are going to the Howard Beach neighborhood in Queens, New York in August 2016. It's a nice neighborhood with mostly single-family homes. Around 26,000 people live there and the neighborhood borders a waterway called Jamaica Bay. Howard Beach is only about a 20-mile drive from New York City proper, so it's part of that whole New York City area. It's like really close to Brooklyn. Like it's part of Queens and it's about three miles away from some of the housing in Brooklyn. So it's very close to all that. Nice. But it's kind of a more higher end area. I don't want to say high end because it sounds more middle class in a lot of places. So sort of middle class to high end because the median income according to um, ye old Wikipedia. So (laughs) maybe wrong. Is like $91,000, though, which is high for median income. But according to news articles about this particular incident, the neighborhood is also home to a lot of police officers and firefighters. There's like a really high concentration of them living in this particular neighborhood. And so that is also kind of like more of a middle class job. Yeah, I mean, the the salary number could just be from cost of living, too, you know. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Good point. Well, that is Howard Beach in a nutshell. Back in 2016, 30-year-old Karina Ann Vitrano lived in the Howard Beach neighborhood with her father, Philip, a retired firefighter, and her mother, Kathy. Howard Beach is a safe, comfortable neighborhood, and like her father, Philip, who goes by Phil, many of these residents, as I said before, are firefighters or police officers. Karina was a fun girl who loved traveling and kept a blog. She was an aspiring writer, and so that's partially why she wrote on her blog. And her friends say that she loved life. Karina had just finished her master's degree in May 2016 and worked as a speech-language pathologist. Additionally, she still worked as a caterer at RV Rooftop at Vetro. As a fun fact, in 2013, Karina appeared in a short film called The Paradox, in which she played an angel. That is a cool name. Yes. The Paradox, according to its IMDb page, is a short film about an angel and a demon who are realizing that both of them are good and evil. Nice. Yeah. So that is a thing that happened. But I thought that was a cool, fun fact. (laughs) She has an IMDb page. That is a cool thing. I know. Yeah. So cool. That's a cool thing. I feel like she'd want people to know that. I'd want people to know that. Absolutely. Yeah. On the evening of August 2nd, 2016, things in Karina's life took a turn. This was a Tuesday night, and normally Karina went running with her father, Phil, every day. But on this particular day, Phil was having trouble because he had a back injury that was really bothering him, and he could not go running. Karina decided that she wanted to go running by herself in this nearby park that's called Spring Creek Park. It's literally yards away from her home. In Howard Beach. So she just had to go down the road, essentially, and she would be in Spring Creek Park. And this particular park 
has trails and there's like high grasses. There's some sort of waterway in there. And it's just a nice place that people go to get exercise or to just enjoy nature. And so she's like, I live here. I go here every day. I'll just go by myself. Right. A reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm. That day, her mother, Kathy, had undergone a medical procedure. She had had surgery from which she was still recovering. And I believe that around the time that Karina left, that her mom had not yet arrived home. But I'm not 100% sure on that just because of the descriptions of the activities that day. It does sound like she had arrived home after Karina went running. At around 5 p.m., she decides that she's going to leave for this run. And it was still daylight because this is August 2nd, so it's full daylight. And she's thinking that there's nothing that could go wrong, right? Well, yeah. Well, her dad was very against this. He definitely thought something could go wrong. And he's just like, we always go together. You should just wait and not go today. But on her way out, she reassured him and said, quote, don't worry, daddy. I'll be okay, unquote. Yeah. I feel like you know where I'm going with this, everyone. Yeah. Because she left at 5 p.m. for this run, and she was caught on camera running past a security camera on her neighbor's house towards this park, but she never came home. That's really sad. I mean, I I kind of figured that's where we were going, but, Mm -hmm. I mean, that just sucks, you know? After she did not arrive home, her father, Phil, became nervous, Pretty much immediately, he started worrying, and he tried contacting her on her cell phone, but he wasn't getting any answer. So after a while, with Karina not answering and with her not returning home, he called his neighbor, who is a police chief. If you recall, I told you there's a lot of officers over here. He knows a lot of cops. And so pretty soon, their neighbors, who are also, for the most part, law enforcement, all sort of leap into this search. And the police chief neighbor also calls 911 to alert them that they have a missing girl. Well, a missing 30-year-old woman. Yeah. Then Phil led a search party looking for his daughter. And he said later that he led the search party because he knew the terrain in the park from jogging there frequently. Although I will point out that a lot of these other cops living in the neighborhood should have also known the terrain. So maybe he shouldn't have been the person leading the search party. And we'll see why. In a minute. Okay. In addition to this search party going out into the park where they know that Karina jogged, they also used her cell phone pings to narrow down her location. And this made it easier to go to the area where she was last alive, essentially. And because Phil was leading the search party, he is the one who found Karina. And he found her 15 feet off the walking trail in this eight foot tall reeds grassy area. And she was partially clothed and laying face down, deceased. Oh, shit. Her pants were down and her socks were wet, like she'd been through water. Yeah. She was holding onto the grass as though she'd been dragged, and she had grabbed onto the grass as someone was dragging her in an attempt to fight back. Yeah. And the saddest part of all this, though, is that Karina was just yards from the safety of her home when all this happened. Like, really, just right down the street. Yeah, that really sucks. Yeah. Now, when he found his daughter's body, Phil immediately picked her up and hugged him close to him. Which is compromising the crime scene. Yeah. And at that point, the police came up behind him and were like, you have to put her down. And they created kind of a crime scene area around her. Now, this would become slightly controversial just because picking her up did disturb the crime scene. And some people have questioned why he was allowed to lead the search party because family members normally aren't supposed to be in a capacity where they're going to come across the body necessarily, at least not this early on. Yeah. And then also, too, again, he did have time to handle her before police could start investigating. I mean, it's understandable as a father he would do that. It's just that it does, you know, cause some conflicts. There's chain of custody issues, yeah. Upon examination, the medical examiner determined that Karina's attacker sexually assaulted her during her murder, and she died by strangulation, but also had wounds from a beating. And this beating was very severe. One of her front teeth had been totally knocked out. There were also chipped teeth. Wow. Yeah, so it was a pretty bad beating. And based on the wounds on her body, the medical examiner could conclude that Karina had fought ferociously against her attacker during this murder. Yeah, good. 
meanwhile, the rest of her family has to learn what happened, right? Well, Karina's brother had the duty of telling their mother of Karina's passing, which is just, I can't even imagine. Yeah, that has to be really horrible. And he ended up telling her on the front porch stoop as she was arriving back home from her surgery. That's a bad day, you know? Yeah, like... You've had surgery, you're just getting home, and then you get that news? Uh Uh-huh. Yikes. Yeah, and so she says that she just started screaming and crying in the street, which makes sense. And then because of her surgical wound, the emergency personnel who had shown up to help Karina tried to, like, essentially put her in the ambulance because they were worried that she was going to start having her stitches burst open or something because this type of, like, horrible thing is something that, you know, it's gut-wrenching and she's just, you know, really in the, the throes of grief. And it's not something that is helpful whenever you are healing from a surgical procedure yeah and of course she's like no because she wants to be there with her family and she wants to be there with karina so she's not trying to get in this ambulance yep. but she might have needed it just because of how bad the you know situation was after this murder though karina's story dominated headlines and it quickly became one of the largest cases in queen's As a result, officers scoured the city looking for a suspect or a clue as to who did this heinous crime. The police department even called in the FBI. Since the park is considered federal land, they were able to take jurisdiction. Authorities sent search teams over the park and throughout the marshland looking for clues. And they pledged that they would cut down every blade of grass until they found clues. And they did recover some extra items, like her shoe had come off and they were able to recover that later. And they just, they had pictures of people in suits, not suit suits, like professional suits, but white protective suits going into these marshlands, just scouring around looking for evidence, trying to solve this crime. Since the FBI was helping, they actually flew drones over the marshlands, trying to look for more evidence or potential suspects or something. But unfortunately, they were unable to really recover any more stuff using the the drones. Police, at that point, did realize that they had some DNA. They had trace DNA on her body. They did not have bodily fluids, but they did have some trace DNA. And so they ended up requesting a DNA sample pretty early on from Karina's father, Phil, which they asked for at the funeral. Wow. Which I thought was a really terrible timing. That's what I was thinking. I mean, obviously they need it partially because they know he handled her, so they would need to rule him out or in, depending on the situation. But you probably shouldn't ask at the funeral. Yeah, you could. You should be able to wait until after, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... Ironically, he did not seem upset by this because at the time, he says he is so focused on them figuring out what happened that he was just like, I don't even care, just take everything. Yeah. So he didn't seem to have anger about that, more so just like, here's everything. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, as police were investigating, some neighbors indicated that they believed a homeless camp near the marshlands could be at fault. Hmm. And as we have previously discussed, we also can call them unhoused now because they are just not with with houses. Yep. A neighbor named Robert Kerr told CBS News, quote, It's terrible. It's disgusting. I feel so bad for the family. They got homeless people living back there in the weeds. They got all these vagrants that just wander around doing nothing, unquote. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Okay, that is a thing that, uh, that, that was said. Yeah, Robert Kerr has some strong opinions that he feels comfortable sharing with the news. Yeah. These feel like comments that you probably shouldn't have these thoughts, but also definitely you shouldn't be sharing those thoughts. No offense to Robert Kerr. Maybe some offense. Robert Kerr does (laughs) some really not cool stuff that Robert Kerr said. I saw that and I was like, wow. I feel like this is just one of the things I included to give you a feel for some of the neighbors because 
There's definitely, I'm sure, lots of really amazing people who live over there, but there's some people who maybe are a little bit not having the best interest of everybody at heart. Yep. And maybe only have their own best interest at heart, including Robert Kerr. Yep. (laughs) Maybe maybe just a bit of offense. So the police actually did look into this homeless encampment and it was only about a mile away from the crime. So I get why people would suspect would be suspicious, just not necessarily why they would express it in that in way. This way. Yeah. And the police said that they were able to clear the people who were living there of any kind of involvement in this crime. I don't know what they cleared them based on, but they had a reason. And I will say that I think it was a good reason because the police were very anxious to solve this because it got a lot of headlines. And I haven't said this because I don't think it's relevant, but Karina was a very attractive girl. And as we all know, very attractive women tend to have more people be interested in their cases. And as a result, people want justice and want action and want movement. And considering that she was only a few blocks away from her house, that's a scary situation. This was considered to be a quote-unquote safe neighborhood of single-family homes. And people were all fired up. Oh, yeah. And so if the police had had any reason to just blame these homeless people, they would have done it. Like, let's be real with ourselves. I mean, I'm not trying to, like, disparage the police, too, along with Robert Kerr. But (laughs) if we're being honest with ourselves, if these people were suspicious at all... Yeah. That would have been a much bigger thing. Absolutely. So yeah. clearly there was they had a reason to clear them. Yep. Then though, something else happened. We had another potential break. 5 days after Karina's murder, when a potential lead emerged in the most horrible way possible. Because 5 days after Karina's murder on August 7th, 2016, a second jogger murder occurred, but this time it was in Princeton, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, Princeton, Massachusetts is very close to Boston. And I want to make sure everyone knows it's not New Jersey that this is happening in. It's actual Massachusetts. That victim and that crime was 27-year-old Vanessa Teresa Marcotte. Now, Vanessa was running near her mother's home when someone attacked her. And searchers later found her body in the nearby woods. So we have some similarities, right? Because both women are around the same age. They're both right near their parents' home. They also both have a similar look to to it themselves. They're both later found in the natural setting that's near the area. At first, authorities suspected that the murders might be connected. Now, for context, Princeton, Massachusetts is just over a three-hour drive from Queens. But Vanessa was also from New York. Yeah. So it's kind of, it does seem very suspicious that these murders occurred so close together. And there, there are these similarities between the, how they look, their ages, where they were running, where their bodies were found. It's suspicious. However, their cases were later determined to be separate. And they might have been ruled separate because their DNA was different from each other. Because Vanessa did have DNA that was recovered from under her nails that was very, it was very good DNA. And so they were able to run that DNA. Now, as a conclusion to what happened with her, that is actually still ongoing. In early 2022, a man named Angelo Colon Ortiz went on trial for Vanessa's murder. And investigators say that his DNA is the one that matched under Vanessa's nails. So we don't know what's going to happen with that. All of his crimes are alleged at this point because he is currently in the trial process still. Right. Now, that lead went nowhere. But... There would be another announcement in Karina's case. And that announcement came on August 31st. So within a month of her murder. And at that point, police released a sketch of their suspect. But it really didn't garner a lot of good leads. And so the case just kind of floundered around for several more months. And by December 2016, it seemed to be going cold. That's not good. Yeah. At that point, authorities decided that they would start doing familial DNA tests to search for a suspect. And allegedly, at this time, they also did phenotyping to find out what kind of DNA it was. And they say that the phenotyping showed that the DNA belonged to a black male. Although, there is some debate on whether or not this phenotyping ever happened. Because there are some allegations that they just started limiting their search to black men. Yeah, they started doing some profiling. Yes. So there's a debate here because the police say they didn't do that. But then the 
a lot of people think they did. And this particular police department doesn't have a good reputation of not doing stuff like that. Right. Not to disparage them, but I mean, kind of disparage yourself. For about six months, police continued to search for a suspect. To help with this search, Karina's family raised thousands of dollars to offer a reward. And they even started a GoFundMe and raised almost $300,000 to help towards the investigation. And I think that should show you how much that the community was fired up about it because people donated almost $300,000. And I'm talking like two ninety nine something yeah. to go towards this. That is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. The police ended up getting a surprise break in the case in January 2017. And this surprise break is going to be where our case takes a, an interesting debatable turn. Police Lieutenant John Russo, who was a lead detective on Karina's case, suddenly remembered something. He remembered seeing a quote-unquote suspicious man around his home in Howard Beach on May 30th, 2016. This would have been a little over a month before Karina's attack and murder. At the time, Lieutenant Russo says that he was unarmed and he was with his two young daughters. So he didn't want to approach the man. So instead, he called 911 and told police that there was a man walking down the street, stopping in front of houses and doubling back. Ooh. (laughs) That was the suspicious behavior. This guy would not be able to live and Houston. I know, right? Because he would just have to call police all day. I know, he'd just be permanently on the yes, phone. permanently on the phone. Yeah. Never not on the Look, phone. He'd have his own dedicated channel. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the whole time. Yep. Officers responded to this call, however, and they talked to the man. Now, this particular man was not committing any crimes, and so they let him go. Like, he literally was just in the street. (laughs) He was just enjoying a nice day, walking down the road, and so the police can't take him in. They did stop and frisk him, (laughs) because that's a thing in New York. Yep. But they, so they did that, and he was, he had no, nothing on him, no crimes were happening. He was let go. Then the next day, on May 31st, 2016, Another neighbor called about the same guy who was walking down the road. And they said, a very suspicious man is out here. And the police arrived and found the same man. And they frisked him again. And he was, again, not committing any crimes at all. (laughs) And they were forced to let him go. Now, I would like all of us to know at this point, I think you figured this out. Um, this man is black. <laughs> he's a black man and he's 20 years old and he's just walking down the street. Literally just walking there. He's just walking there. He has, he doesn't even have anything on him that they can pull him in for. He's literally committing zero crime. And two separate people called 911. That is messed up. Which is a red flag. Yup. It's a red flag. We're going to learn some more things, but... That No, if you don't do that. Yep. So that is a thing that actually happened. And at this point, though, in January 2017, roughly, what, six months after he sees this man, or seven months after he sees this man, and about six months after, or five-something months after Karina's murder, Lieutenant Russo thinks, ooh, I wonder if that black man that I saw and was suspicious of could be the murderer. Oh, wow. That is a hell of a leap. Yes. Yes. Oh, it is, Aaron. It really is. It's a really big leap. So at that point, he goes and finds the other cops and they get his name. And this suspicious man was 20-year-old Chanel Lewis. Lewis lived in a Brooklyn neighborhood located about three miles away from Howard Beach. He told his mother that he liked walking in Howard Beach because it was peaceful So he would walk from his Brooklyn neighborhood over there and just kind of wander around the park and he would go to the fast food restaurants and there was a pizza place that his mom Veda liked and he would buy her pizza and then bring it home to her. Oh, that's sweet. Which is adorable. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. And so (laughs) this is their suspicious man. Apparently he's eating Subway and buying pizza and ooh, oh no. Jesus. Yes. So... It's, again, it's important to note that this particular neighborhood 
is predominantly white. In fact, according to their population breakdown, they only have about 1.5-ish percent of their residents that are actually black people. And white people make up over like 75%, like a like around 76%. So it's like a lot of white people. Yeah. So it's problematic that they're calling the police on him over and over and over again when literally all he's doing is walking around and getting fast food. Yeah, that is messed up. Additionally, it's important to note that incidences of racial violence have happened in Howard Beach, including a hate crime that happened in 2006. Now, this is not their only hate crime. It's just that this one was closer in proximity, so I thought I would tell you what happened. In that incident, there were three black men walking down the road who had some items with them. And three white men saw them and decided that because they are black, they must be doing horrible things. So the white guys, who were led by a man named Nicholas Minucci, got out of their car and attacked the black men. And Minucci, in particular, used an aluminum bat to beat one of the men and steal his items. And during the assault, Minucci said the N-word at least once. Yikes. Yes. And also, this poor guy had to be hospitalized. He had head injuries and, like, leg injuries. And in his defense at court, Minucci claimed that, first of all, he calls everybody the N-word. So it's not racial. It is. Don't do that. It Just don't say it. It's not that hard. Yep. And also, he claimed that he thought they were committing crimes, robbery specifically, so he was beating them with the bat to do a citizen's arrest. And he stole from them. Yes. But that he left that part out. That was just, you know, that was just later. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just, okay, first of all, everyone needs to stop doing citizen arrest. That's not for you. You need to stop doing it. Just stop. You don't know what you're doing, and you're a fucking idiot. Stop it. Nobody, no. But also, the... How are you... Don't hit people with bats. Yep. Also, it really sounds terrible. Like, I think we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. But when I was in sixth grade, there was a kid at, like, field day that accidentally got hit in the head with the bat. And it was the most horrible sound I've ever heard in my life. It was an aluminum bat, and it was disgusting. And I still sometimes hear it in my head. And it makes me want to vomit every single time. He ended up being okay. I mean, obviously not great. Because he had a head injury that was very severe. But, like... Oh my god, we thought he was dead for like the whole, like for at least the whole day. It was a while before we, we didn't think that he was dead. Because they had to come get him in an ambulance and he was just laying there that whole time. Like he did not move anymore. It was awful. And I just, a normal person doesn't hit people with bats. That's right. This is not a hot take. I feel like we can <laughs> all agree with that. Regular people don't do that and that's freaking wrong. Just as a helpful tip, don't do any of these things. And also, if you see a black person walking down the street and you think they are committing crimes, then you are a racist. I actually wrote it as out. You are the racist, like Mari. <laughs> you know, just stop. You yep. need to work on yourself. Don't call anybody. Don't go out there. Just ask yourself, why am I thinking this? How can I fix this problem? Because you are doing the wrong thing. It's the wrong. It's wrong. So anyway, this guy's in jail now. And or at least he was in jail. He might be out by now. But he did get convicted of some of the crimes. He actually didn't get the hate crime part, which I thought was wild. Because, yeah, that's some bullshit. Yeah, because it was kind of obvious. I don't know. You would but think so, yeah. I believe he got twenty five year, up to 25 years in prison. So at least he did go to jail. But this is the environment, though, that we are in. Yeah. Just as a perspective where this cop randomly remembers he saw a black man this one time. And maybe that guy <laughs> did it. He might have done it. Yep. So at this point, they decide we have his name, they're going to go talk to Chanel Lewis. They went to go talk to Chanel and they asked him for a DNA sample. And Lewis volunteered to give this DNA sample. When they took the sample, one of the detectives allegedly said, quote, he's not the perp, he's too puny and dim-witted, unquote. That seems kind of rude. It is rude. It's such a weird thing. I don't even know how to respond to that. Yeah. Like, you must be innocent. You just suck. Like, I'm... <laughs> what? No. Yeah. I mean, be like, I am innocent, so thank you for that. Yeah, but, and he I seems mean... like such a nice guy, and they're focusing on the worst parts. I don't, anyway, these they're not good. We, we don't like them. As part of their investigation, officers did request hundreds of DNA samples, and according to reports, authorities did specifically target black men and partially black men in and around Howard Beach. 
They say, again, that this was because of DNA phenotyping, but again, this was controversial and some people have argued that none of that part happened and that they just focused on black guys. After testing about 380 black men, they say that Lewis's DNA did match the trace samples from her neck under her nails and on her cell phone. So they named their suspect as 20-year-old Chanel Lewis. Lewis grew up in East New York City, the son of Jamaican immigrants, and his mother worked as a nurse's aide while his father was a teacher. As an adolescent, Chanel attended a school for students who have learning disabilities. Lewis is considered intellectually disabled, and you can notice it from his affect that he does have some processing issues. Unfortunately, at this point, when this happened in 2016-2017, his father was suffering from dementia and was currently in a nursing home. So he was living with just his mother. On February 4th, 2017, DNA testing had already been done. And so the police brought Lewis in for questioning. And he was in custody for about 11 hours when he allegedly confessed. Now, you can watch part of this confession. And it is very puzzling. For one, he seems to have trouble answering some questions, but he also replies quickly to other questions. Well, you can see from his affect that he's struggling with processing what they want from him. And some people believe that he's faking that, but the fact that he went to a special needs school does suggest that something might be going on with him. Now, some things to note are that even though there are some open-ended questions in the interview, a lot of the questions seem leading. And the people talking to him, the, the, there's a DA that's actually doing the interrogation. There's a detective there, and I believe another DA, but there's actually a district attorney who's questioning him. And these questions are being delivered similar, as you would see, to like a trial when someone's on the witness stand where this DNA is coming in hot of like, and where did you go next? And what did you do there? And who did you touch? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. And we see Chanel just sort of like crumpled in on himself, kind of meekly responding to the answers. Now, again, there are people who believe that Chanel is guilty who think that he is faking that. But again, he does have a noted, documented intellectual disability. So could it be that that's causing him to behave that way? What ends up happening, though, is the DA questioning him asks a lot of yes-no questions when he doesn't get the answer that he wants. So, for example, he asks, did you hit her with both hands? After Lewis had several times tried to discuss how he, like, hit her. Because they were asking him, like, then what happened? And he would try to say something. And when the DA didn't get the answer he'd want, he would just kind of narrow it down. Like, well, did this or this happen? And then at some point he would actually just sometimes just say, is it yes or no? So instead of letting Chanel tell any kind of story about what happened, he's literally asking him like piece by piece on the evidence. Yep. He also asks a lot of questions where there are limited responses where he will be like, was she face up or face down? And it's the same kind of thing as you see in a lot of interrogations where we, people say they falsely confessed, where if he gives an answer that's not right or that doesn't make sense, they ask another question with like the information in the question that they want. So like, as an example, there was a situation where they asked how he moved her and he said that he like grabbed her ankles and threw her over his shoulder, which is physically impossible, especially because of his size. And so then they're like, oh, did you grab her arms? And he's like, yeah, I grabbed her arms. And he literally just changed a detail yep. in the story, but they just keep, they just keep like questioning him. Now there are moments where he does give fast answers, but there are also moments where he seems very confused and like he's being, like he's waiting for them to cue him about what he's supposed to say. And then at the end of the confession, well, I should say first, he does end up confessing to punching her five times or for five minutes. He does change that back and forth and to strangling Karina, but he denies sexually assaulting her. He also said that her body was in the wrong position at one point during this confession. Now, in the confession, Lewis also agreed with investigators that Karina scratched him because they have to explain the DNA, right? They say that they found his DNA under her nails and like a mixture of DNA that was under her nails. They also say they found it on her neck, like on the back of her neck and on her cell phone. So they have to explain why his DNA would be there. So they ask him like, oh, did she scratch you? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, where did she scratch you? And, and he's like, 
uh, you know, he's trying to remember and he's like, oh, on my face. And they're like, oh, she scratched your face? And he's like, yeah, uh, which is important. So pin, put a pin in that for later. At the end of this confession, if you watch it, there is this really weird part that gets cut off where he starts to suggest that one of the police officers had been whispering something to him and was trying to ask a clarifying conf- like question about, did he say the right thing? Or like, is that what we talked about or whatever? And then mm-hmm. the video comes cuts off. And so some people believe that this is evidence that he had had some kind of prior discussion with them and that this was kind of a little bit set up for him to confess. Yeah, it was kind of staged. That's what some people, again, there's there's other people that believe that this was just him confessing, but then there's some people that suspect that this was coerced because he claims later that this was coerced. And on the actual confession video, the law enforcement officials do admit that he had told them he didn't want to talk to them the night before. But now they're like saying, but you want to come clean now. You want to set things right now. And he's just kind of like, yeah. So there's, it's very suspicious that he comes in, says he doesn't want to talk to anybody. And then all of a sudden he's doing this weird yes, no thing. And at no point is he allowed to just give an explanation about what happened or tell any kind of narrative, which is what you would want to see to, cause like the police are saying, oh, well he knows details only the killer would know. But if you're watching them ask him these questions, he really doesn't yeah. necessarily him all of that information. Yeah, like he might know some of the details, but he might not because it's hard to tell from the way they ask the questions. It does come off as very suggestive. Yeah. And again, he does have some intellectual disability, so this is exactly the type of person that's easy to lead into a confession. So once he gets this confession done, he immediately starts saying it's coerced. And that becomes the foundation of part of his defense. Now, Lewis's trial began in November 2018. At trial, Prosecutor Brad Leventhal presented Lewis's confession and the traces of DNA. Additionally, police say they found a search history on Lewis's phone for redemption and opportunities for second chances, which some people believe point to his guilt. And at some point during the trial's They also brought up that he may have been searching for the crime scene and or information about Karina on his phone. And so it's unclear if he did that because maybe he did it and wanted to know about the the investigation or if he did it because he often went to that park and found out a crime happened there. Yeah. It could be either way, to be honest. Yeah, because, I mean, they said it was a very publicized case. Mm -hmm. I mean, he may have just been... Looking at the news or searching for what's in the news. And like for me personally, we just had a murder over here that happened very close to our our townhouse, which I did not tell Aaron about. But it's just a few streets over and it's very close to where we used to live. And it's like literally like like a little over a mile from where we live now. But the street, there's like that street runs like a few blocks from here. So I didn't know which part of the street it was. And when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, like there was a murder right here because one of the news sources presented it as though the bodies had been found in the street. They weren't. They were found in the apartment, but it was just the reporting was confusing. Yeah. And so I thought, wait, what? There were bodies found where I walk every day? <laughs> yeah, that's fucked up. That's not cool. So I immediately looked up all the articles about this. And it turns out it was a murder-suicide in an apartment complex, which is incredibly traumatic. Yeah. But if you looked at my phone, you would be like, oh, she's looking up information about this crime. Because it's right here. Yep. So that's possible. Now, I'm not trying to defend him because I know a lot of people think that he is guilty. I'm just saying that this case ends up being murky. And so I'm just trying to present both sides. That, like, on the one side, you have people saying this is he's guilty. On the other side, you have people saying there are other reasons that this could be happening. At this trial, defense attorneys Julia Burke, Jin Chung, and Robert Mueller presented the argument that Lewis's confession had been coerced and they pointed to a lot of his inconsistencies and just the way that things were asked. And if you watch the video, there are a few people that think that it, that he looks guilty as heck when they watch this video. But a lot of people do agree that there do seem to be some problems with the confession. In this confession, he did provide a motive, which I should have probably mentioned earlier. And this motive was that he was angry at a neighbor for playing loud music. And when he saw Karina, he just lost it. And he said, quote, one thing led to another, hitting her and stuff like that, unquote. That's a pretty shaky motive. Yeah, it's real weird. So he tells them that earlier in the day, 
that he had been at his home and his neighbor was playing loud music and it was upsetting him and he doesn't like to be associated with that. And so eventually he went on a walk to cool off. And then this somehow led to the murder. He also told them that he left his home at like 12 something. But then later on, they have to say he arrived at the park at 5 p.m., which is the time she arrived. Right. And so that's one of the inconsistencies because when they sit down, they're like, where were you that day? And he says, I was at the park. And they're like, when did you arrive? And they ask him like that a couple times. And he's like, 5 p.m. And then later they're like, what had you been doing that day? And he told them he left his home at like 12 something after his neighbor was playing loud music. But he only lives like three miles away from this park. So yeah. how did he spend five hours and how would he still even be mad about this music thing? Yep. It's like that's such a weird motive that that's what they go with, though. Like, that's literally what they go with as his motive. So, for their part, the can- the police do argue about the whole coercion thing. That there are moments before they started the confession where they say he was alone in the room on camera and that he doesn't seem agitated, that, like, he seems calm. But again, he has a very flat affect as a person. So, I, I don't know if you can say he's calm if he's always flat. Yeah, exactly. So that is kind of goes back and forth. Now, the DNA is like the hottest issue here for me. You hear DNA evidence and you think, wow, like how is there any question? Like yeah. for a lot of people, they think the, co- the the confession was coerced, but that the DNA is rock solid. And so they believe he's guilty, period. Yeah. Which makes, which makes sense in some ways. But the defense claims that the DNA was unreliable and that it was improperly collected and tested and the methods used are methods that are also prone to contamination right so that is their argument about the dna and why you can't rely on it as for this case and to be fair in their in their defense it is trace dna from like skin cells and type stuff like it's not like blood or semen or something like that where they have like a big sample it's traces of dna and in in terms of her nails there was a mixture of dna so is this really that reliable i mean yeah i know that recently for me i've been exposed to a couple different cases where trace dna was used to convict someone and then it turned out that they were innocent that entire time that the trace dna got there because they had like touched something at a way earlier date or that there, the testing, just the sample was really small. And, and then also, too, if, there's, if it's really small, they burn up the sample. It's just, it's hard to say what's happening. So part of me is like, okay, there's DNA evidence he did it. But then when you put it all together and how clumsily the case was assembled and the fact that it's not like, it's just a trace amount. Yeah. It does seem like there are holes here. And this is not all of it. There's, I mean, we, we still have more more controversy to uncover. So hang in there with me because I don't, I don't even at this point, I'm going to be honest. I don't even have an opinion about this case because I'm just, I just keep getting hung up on the DNA, but then part of me definitely believes the the controversy. So I don't even know what to think. And I'm not the only one because at the conclusion of trial number one, the jury deliberated for 13 hours, but they soon reached an impasse. And they reported back to the judge that they were hopelessly deadlocked. So in his first trial, they had a hung jury. And the result is that the the judge declared a mistrial. And so even with this DNA evidence, it's, there's enough doubt that people weren't able to convict him and there was a mistrial. Hey, Freaky Friends, it's Michelle and Melissa from the Freaky Fridays podcast. We are sisters in separate states and love to talk about all kinds of spooky, freaky, and scary shit while drinking and laughing through our fear. Join us Fridays as we delve into everything from the world of the paranormal to scary movies to creepy stuff we find around the internet. Subscribe to Freaky Fridays wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Sleep tight. Make sure you leave the lights on. Freaky Fridays is a proud member of the Podmoth Network. For more awesome pods, check out podmoth.network. Fast forward, Lewis went on trial for a second time on March 17th, 2019. The prosecution and the defense presented largely the same cases, but the prosecution brought in surprise evidence mid-trial. And this surprise evidence was medical records 
that they say showed that Chanel Lewis received treatment for a hand injury on the day after the murder. Interesting. Yes. Now, later, these records would also become debated because the prosecution claims that these are basically a smoking gun clue because Lewis had confessed to punching Karina and they argued that these were boxer's injuries and that they indicated that he had punched her and then gone and gotten medical care either that same day or the next day. But at the same time, supporters pointed out that these injuries were played up by the prosecution and also that this medical exam documented that he had no other wounds, including no wounds to his face or arms. And so that's where the whole scratching situation came in because the police needed to explain how her DNA, his DNA could be under her nails. And so they had to have him say that she scratched him. So he did. He said, she scratched my face, right? Well, we have evidence that he didn't have any scratches on his face or like his arms or anything. He just had this like hand wound. So is it possible that this hand thing is unrelated and that the the scratches aren't there? It's like scratch gate. (laughs) Who knows? We don't even know. It's weird because it seems like part of it definitely supports the defense and part of it for sure supports the prosecution. What do we believe at this point? Now, as this trial was proceeding, protesters who support Lewis demonstrated outside the courthouse and at times even blocked traffic. There was, there's been a lot of support for Chanel Lewis because there's a pretty big contingency of people who think that he was railroaded, that all that the DNA evidence was either fabricated or planted or just misrepresented and that essentially they needed a scapegoat and that he made a good one because he has a disability. That is what, and also is black. And so that is what a lot of people think. And so he had supporters demonstrating for him outside the courthouse and like calling for justice. I will note at this point though, that Karina's family wholeheartedly believes that he is guilty. So that part has been really hard for them because it seems like their daughter's killer has a lot of support. Um, So we have, like, two families here that are kind of like, you know, because his family supports him and doesn't think he did it. So you have two families, and both of them are, like, really solid families that, you know, are very loving and caring and are being torn apart by this incident. Yeah. Now, both sides rested their case on May 28th, 2019. That same day, the defense team received an anonymous letter saying the prosecution withheld potential exculpatory evidence. Oh. Now, exculpatory evidence is evidence that could support the defense or that might exonerate the defendant. So, if you have a prosecutor that's withholding that, this is a really big deal. Oh, yeah. Additionally, the letter alleged that two jacked-up white guys, that's in quotes, may be the ones behind Korea's attack and said that during initial investigations, police had basically said in their search circles that they were looking for two white men. And then later on, this was redirected towards a black man. Huh. This letter was allegedly written by someone who worked for the police department, according to the letter. But again, it was anonymous. Now, because of the letter, the defense requested a hearing to consider its contents and decide if there could be something that was done about it. They also requested a mistrial if they weren't allowed to have their hearing. However, the judge denied both requests in order that final arguments would proceed. That's fucked up. Yeah, this judge also low-key hates Chanel Lewis, um, as we'll see in a minute. Yeah. The trial concluded on April 1st, 2019, and the jury went out to deliberate. Unlike his first trial, though, this second jury deliberated for just five hours before they came back with a verdict at around 9 p.m. on April 1st, and this verdict was guilty. In fact... The jury found him guilty of first-degree murder, two counts of second-degree murder, and one count of first-degree sexual assault. How do you get convicted of both first- and second-degree murder? Or, or, I mean, like, multiple counts, though? I mean, I don't don't understand. I actually do not understand that as well. (laughs) I think it depends on where you live, but that is what he got convicted of. That's crazy. So, just basically, just for everybody. Yeah, Jesus. Before sentencing could begin, it's getting more crazy, though. Because something strange happened. A juror came forward and told the court that some jurors committed misconduct 
by rushing to convict Lewis and also said that he felt pressured to convict Lewis like he had to do it and that that is essentially the situation in the jury room. Wow. Yeah, which like, be serious, that's wild. Yeah. So as a result, Lewis got a super rare post-trial hearing where several jurors had to testify. And including this juror that says he is pressured to convict and that there was misconduct on the jury, which is a red flag. Like, how do you even, how do you let that happen? Like, I know that this has been hard to keep having these trials, but I feel like if you have a juror come forward and say, I didn't want to do this, then maybe y'all should do something different. Uh huh. That's wild. That's a problem. In the end, though, the defense ended up asking for a retrial. However, Justice Michael B. Aloise, who is the judge, denied their request. Um, he loves denying the defense requests. Yeah, it seems that just way. Just so everybody knows that. Yeah. So the sentencing hearing went forward in April 2019, and the defense asked for a lesser sentence, citing his emotional and mental health problems. But... The judge was not hearing any of that. Judge Michael B. Eloise sentenced Lewis to life in prison with no chance of parole. And during the sentencing, he told Lewis that he'd have to make amends for his crime behind bars saying, quote, you're going to do it inside a cage, unquote. This was the judge. Wow. As part of the sentencing hearing, Karina's parents and siblings also gave victims impact statements. And remember, they wholeheartedly trust in Lewis's guilt. And I feel like we shouldn't be judging them regardless of what's going on because all they have is what they've been given and they've lost their loved one and they're not living their best lives right now. So I just feel sorry for them because they're really the biggest, I don't want to say the biggest losers, but like that's essentially what's happening is they're the biggest losers in this situation. Yeah. They collectively described Karina as a wonderful person and urged the judge to levy the heaviest penalty possible against Lewis, pointing out that Karina must have suffered greatly in her final moments. Her father, Philip, said that he and his children are now like zombies, just waiting until it's their time to pass away. And he said the only thing keeping him from taking his own life is his belief in God. Karina's mother told Lewis that she thinks he pretends to be emotionally challenged to make people feel sorry for him, but she thinks he's a remorseless killer who's just trying to outsmart the justice system. Karina's sister, Tana, told Lewis that she hopes he lives his life in darkness and fear. At the sentence, Lewis maintained his innocence. He said, quote, I'm innocent. I'm sorry for the family's loss, but I didn't do this, unquote. He has continued to maintain his innocence. And as I said before, his family does support him. And he does have a lot of supporters. As Prosecutor Brad Leventhal left the courthouse, Lewis's supporters actually chanted, shame on you. And he does have allegations against him of misconduct before in terms of, like, racial misconduct. So it doesn't help that he has that reputation. Yeah. After the conviction, Lewis's mother, Veda Lewis, spoke from the courthouse steps. And as part of her statement, she said, quote, I know my son is innocent. She also accused the police of planting her son's DNA on Karina, a claim that is so far unfounded, but there are people who believe it. And the defense announced their plans to appeal the case. But this is not actually the final chapter of the story, which I don't think should come as a surprise at this point because it's kind of been wild so far. Many of Lewis's supporters argue that this is just another case of a wrongfully convicted black man who's being scapegoated for a crime. And an online petition asking Queens District Attorney Melinda Katz to reopen Karina's case garnered 40,000 signatures in 2021. They want her to turn it over to the Conviction Integrity Unit for further review. And when running for office, Katz pledged to fight prosecutorial misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct. So she should be willing to do this, although at this point, it appears that she has decided not to do it at this time. Um, here are some reasons why supporters say that Lewis's conviction should be reviewed. One is that the prosecutor, Brad Leventhal, allegedly has that history of prosecutorial abuse. Two, police used racial profiling when conducting their investigation. Three, potential scientific evidence came up during the trial. And four, the confession may have been coerced. According to the petition, Lewis has already suffered abuse at the hands of his fellow inmates, including sexual abuse, which is alarming to his supporters who believe he is innocent. At this point, though, there has been no movement in the case. To this day, public opinion about Karina's murder and Lewis's conviction 
is divided with people on both sides. Some who believe he's the guiltiest person they've ever seen. Some who believe that he is a scapegoat and is completely innocent. And that Karina's murderer is still out there. Which is also important for people who are kind of focusing on the justice part. If you want her to get justice, you have to have the right person, right? Yep. Personally, though, I honestly can't decide what to think. If there wasn't DNA, I would 100% think that he was innocent. Like, I would have complete reasonable doubt. The DNA is a hang-up for me, even though it's trace DNA. And again, I've recently heard several cases where trace DNA ended up being misleading and it wasn't that person who did it. And I cannot help but wonder if because he was always out there, is it possible that his that maybe his DNA really was on her, but that... It wasn't because he killed her. Because, like, as an example, if the DNA under her nails was a mixture of DNA, why would she have so many DNAs under there? Yep. So, like, the police say that she was grabbing onto grass as she was being pulled. Is it possible that, like, DNA from people who had been on that grass, mm-hmm. like skin cells and stuff from people who had just been on the grass, is it possible that they... that all of their DNA particles are under there? Yeah. I'm not saying that I know exactly... If that's true, I just know from some some cases that I just was reading into that there have been incidences where people have been at someone's house and, like, touched a towel and then, like, their DNA was found on it during a crime scene investigation. Yeah. And so if you're, if you can literally just dry your hands on a towel and your DNA is on there, is it not possible that your DNA could be somewhere in this situation yeah. if you go out there a lot right it could be on the grass because you took a picnic there yeah or like know. maybe you yeah. spit like if you know right. people spit sometimes if you like honk the loogie and then someone sat on it would your dna be on their butt like probably probably so but, yeah i mean one of the things that stood out to me was they're saying that she scratched his face but wouldn't mm-hmm. wouldn't she have like blood or more significant dna under her fingernails possibly if that was the case? i mean like because i mean if you think about it i mean like you that's not just going to be like like yeah. little random bits of it like that's gonna be like bloody chunks are in your fingernails right possibly i mean like that's what usually happens on murder shows that we yeah. watch you know like investigation discovery and stuff yeah and, and so like that i mean i get that i'm not a scientist and maybe yeah. there's different things that go on but that just it struck me as funny whenever yeah. we were covering that you know it is and i mean yeah the dna is tough but mm-hmm. for me there's there's just so much that makes me doubt you yeah. know what I mean? And so maybe he did do it. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I definitely have enough doubt that I would have trouble yeah. convicting like, somebody I on that. I feel like if the confession were more clear, like if they had been yeah. like, what happened that day? And he sat there and was like, I did this, 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 this. And then I might be like, I don't know if I believe this is coerced. Because there's definitely times when I've watched a confession that later that person said it was coerced that I was just like, no, it was not. Like everything seems to be on the up and up. The camera was on the whole time. You know, you you said these things. Nobody pressured you. Nobody offered you a deal. Nobody tricked you. You really just said these things. But then there's other times when you watch these confessions where it definitely looks suspicious. And it looks like they're leading the person. And that is exactly what happens. Like, I watched a video of this confession. And it's it's not... It does not seem to be on the up and up. Yeah. It's just such a hard thing because... The DNA, it's still, it's definitely a hang-up for me. It's definitely compelling. But I feel like if you really think about some of the newer things that are coming about DNA, a lot of different investigation-type shows looking into cases where somebody was convicted on a DNA result that was misleading, that there are people that have forensic evidence at their trial that it seems to be their DNA, but it ends up not being them or ends up being, like, a an incorrect match or it's explainable. There's a reason why their DNA was there. And it just makes me wonder if that could be true for him. Or maybe he's the most guiltiest person ever. I mean, I feel like the hands injury is suspicious too. He also didn't have scratches. So yeah. it's, it's weird. It's yeah. weird. And then also too, he has this intellectual disability. Yep. It's documented. I mean, there's definitely times when I don't believe that the person had limitations that were preventing them from doing something. But in this case, he has a history. Like, he went to school for people with special needs. It's not like he just woke up one day and was like, I can't think. Yep. Or I can't do this. Like, he always had a problem. Exactly. It's just, it's really, really sad. And also, people try to point to the fact that he was unemployed as that being like a character flaw for him. And I'm like, 
first of all, he's 20. He has an intellectual disability and he comes from a professional family. Both of his parents are professionals. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he's unemployed because he just like isn't wanting to work. I think that he's unemployed again because he has this issue. Yeah. And that's why his parents were taking care of him. Yep. That makes sense though. I mean, mm-hmm. anyway, it's just sad. It's I, 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 The whole case is sad. It's Karina was obviously a really amazing person and she had just finished this degree this like speech pathology degree and she was helping kids and trying to help kids live a better life and get a better education. And it's just really sad that she was taken, especially right when she just started doing that. And she had a bunch of people who loved her. She's a very vibrant person and she was just trying to go for a run. And we, we all go out and do that stuff. I walk all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm so suspicious. I'm afraid of everybody. I feel like I told Aaron today, it's like playing Frogger. When you're outside as a woman by yourself because, you know, you're, like, aware of where all the men are. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I got me walk across the street. Oh, no. There's a... That guy has a shovel. Let me go <laughs> go back. The other guy, at least he doesn't have a shovel. Like, let me head over there. And it just makes me sad that she's, like, right by her house just having a nice run and then she gets killed. It's yeah. complete BS. Absolutely it is. And so, I don't know. I just... I hope that if Chanel's innocent that he gets out and that... Whoever is guilty is caught. Or if he is guilty, I hope he stays in there because that's probably where he should be because this is messed up. Yep. And I personally, I don't know which is the truth. And this case, I did not realize this when I picked this. I just saw Karina came up on something and I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. And then I started doing it and I was like, oh my gosh, uh, this is way more stuff than I thought. Yep. And now I really honestly don't know what to think. And I feel like I'm betraying her family by like... By, like, not believing in, in Chanel Lewis's guilt. But at the same time, I don't really believe it. And I mm-hmm. also feel like I'm betraying his mom by, like, not supporting him. So I don't even know what to do. Uh, I thought, listeners... Draw your own conclusions. Do you have... Yeah, draw your own conclusion, conclusions. Draw your own conclusions. You can share them with us if you would like to. I'm definitely going to make sure I post a page for this case. I mean, a picture thing for this case in case you want to comment. Because I'm just like... I don't even know. And normally I have an opinion. Normally I get to the end and I'm like, oh, I know what I think happened. Yeah. Like whatever it is. But in this case, I genuinely don't know. And maybe I should. I'm sure there's somebody out there being like, there's DNA. I feel like it's because I'm that person. Like I'm that person that really is just kind of like, I don't know, y'all. This DNA seems very compelling. But in this case, I don't know if I'm compelled. Yep. But I also want Karina to have justice. So, I don't know. I keep going back and forth. Do you have an opinion that you want to share, Aaron? I don't know anything for sure because I wasn't there. But at the same time, I feel compelled that this dude got railroaded. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's just my gut feeling. And I think that what even if he is guilty, I don't think they had enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was guilty. Yeah. And so, personally, I don't think that he should have been convicted of this. I mean... Mm -hmm. I get that it's that's a tough situation, and obviously that's hard for her family because she does deserve justice. But I mean, our judicial system is set up to favor, you know, you have to be proven guilty, other than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it just sucks when it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. I mean, the whole situation sucks. The whole again, uh, yes, <laughs> that's our conclusion. The entire situation is garbage. Yeah. There's no does. happy ending. There was never no. going to be a happy ending. Nope. And I feel like it's just even sadder. But we've arrived at the ending. So, I mean, <laughs> hopefully you got something for that. We have, If nothing else, you have, like, some type of righteous anger from the other case. From, like, the cases that were woven in there. There's also, like, a bunch of attached crimes today. <laughs> and obviously we'd love to hear from you. And you can also email us at badaxpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on social media at BadAxPod. We're on, I think, everything. Yep. We mostly use Instagram. I've gotten back into at least two Instagram posts this week. I'm trying to go back up to my normal several Instagram posts every week. We are also on TikTok. We have some videos up there you can watch now. And I will hopefully be posting more again soon. I have been back into my depression recently. And I'm trying to be, like, more keyed up. My... My grief cycle cycles a lot and I've been extremely sad and not taking pleasure in anything. And that's been frustrating because I'm just like listless, but I'm forcing myself. Tonight I went to my writing group 
to do a critique. So I'm forcing myself to do some things. So go team. But it's been rough. So that's happening. I'll try to do Instagram and TikTok. We have Patreon. We, our Patreon is patreon.com backslash backspod. There's a lot of stuff from prior months. I am still doing February. I have not posted them yet, but it's happening. So don't worry. I know we only have a few more days left, but it's just going to be a very exciting end of the month uh, for Bad Axe. Aaron, do you want to tell them about the website? Uh, yeah, website's badaxpod.com. Go check it out. Yes, um, it's cool. So you can hang out there at the website. Yeah, it's a very cool website. It's very cool. And that's going to be super fun. Absolutely. All right. Well, we will see you very soon. And have safe weeks, weekends, and everything, all that shebang. And it's like March almost, so that'll be fun for everybody probably. Yep. Although it's going to get hot here, which sucks. Yep. It's Texas. Mm-hmm. Houston. So hot. Anyway, we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.